The Mike Wagner Show is powered by Sonic Web Studios. Hi, this is Mia Mohsen Zia, also known as Mia No Time for Love. Check out my latest book, Missing, available in print and ebook formats on Amazon. It's now time for the Mike Wagner Show, powered by Sonic Web Studios and sponsored by international award-winning author Mia Mohsen Zia of Missing. The Mike Wagner Show can be heard on over 40 podcast platforms, as well as HamiltonRadio.net, Diamonds FM, and TheMikeWagnerShow.com. We can be heard in over 100 countries, featuring over 1,000 well-known and amazing guests throughout the globe, and named one of the top 100 global podcasts in the New York Weekly Times, Hollywood Entertainment News, Los Angeles Weekly Times, Apple, and Chartable. So sit back and relax and enjoy another great episode of the award-winning Mike Wagner Show. Hey everybody, it's Mike from the Mike Wagner Show, powered by Sonic Web Studios and brought to you by official sponsor of the Mike Wagner Show, international warring author Mia Molson's The Missing, available on Amazon and paperback and ebook. We're here with a terrific gentleman who's a former New York City uh, narcotics prosecutor and a journalist for Legal Reporter at MSNBC and also attended um, Rutgers Law School and um, also has a new book which tells the mind-boggling story of the unprecedented uh, federal prosecution in the conviction of uh, two gentlemen Basically, the um, the, the Florida-based um, founders of a sprawling spice operation going into an after-crossing um, project, which uh, basically I met at Narcotics Anonymous, and of course exports a little-known, um, still raging, uh, you know, the war on drugs. We'll talk more about that. This is kind of like you know Reaganomics or whatever. And of course, um, he also you know just documents it from the beginning to end as well too and of course the book is called bizarro the uh, surreal saga of america's um secret war on synthetic drugs and the florida kingpins it captured live ladies and gentlemen the plus studios in beautiful downtown new york city the uh, former new york city a narcotics prosecutor and also journalist for legal reporter and msnbc and with the book bizarro the surreal saga of america's secret war on synthetic drugs and the florida kingpins it captured ladies and gentlemen the multi-talented jordan rubin jordan good morning good afternoon good evening thanks for joining us today thanks for having me mike really appreciate it what's great to have you on board jordan Sear, former new york city narcotics prosecutor you're also a journalist for legal reporter on msnbc you also attended rutgers law school and also um you have a book which tells the mind-boggling story of the unprecedented federal prosecution and conviction of uh, Burton Ritchie and Ben Galicki, the Florida-based uh, founders of a sprawling spice operation, going into what is um, after crossing paths at Narcox Anonymous, and of course exposes little-known, still a raging war on drugs, which um, charges people for selling drugs that didn't know they're illegal. And there's a lot of them out there that you think it's legal, but it, they're not. You know, we could rattle off some of it and still prevalent, but never mentioned. It's in a book called Bizarro, the Surreal Saga of America's Secret War on Synthetic Drugs and the Florida Kingpins It Captured. And uh, before getting to all that, Jordan, tell us how you first got started. Sure, with the book. So uh, with, 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 with yourself, first of all, then the book. So how did you get started in your career, especially being um, a, a narcotics pr prosecutor in New York City? Sure. So the career has been a bit of a winding road, not sure where it's going exactly. But 
I did go to Rutgers Law School, as you mentioned. I graduated in 2012 and landed my dream job at the Manhattan DA's office in New York. And it was there that I was assigned to the Office of the Special Narcotics Prosecutor, which is an office that prosecutes narcotics-related felonies in all five boroughs of the city. And so it focuses on drugs, obviously, but not just drugs. You get really tied into drugs, gangs, all the different things that tie into drugs, which is basically everything once you start to learn about it and have experience with investigating it. So I was there from 2012 to 2017, and it was then that I embarked on a new adventure in media and went down to Washington and was working for Bloomberg covering the Supreme Court. It was there where I actually wound up getting into the story that became the book Bizarro. And then just recently, I started with MSNBC this past November, and that's where I've been ever since. And in terms of the book Bizarro, back when I was at Bloomberg, I was reporting on the Supreme Court. And there was really just this random article that I wrote about a case involving vagueness in the law. It didn't involve drugs, but it involved just the concept of vagueness, which to set the backdrop a bit, People, I think, are broadly familiar with the concept of due process in the law. And it means a lot of different things. But one of the things it means is that laws need to be clear enough so that we can abide by them. If they're too vague, then we can't order our lives around them and we would have no idea what the law is. And so this concept is really what underlies the issue in Bizarro in this law called the Analog Act. And so the way I wound up getting into this story is that after I wrote an article about this Supreme Court case on vagueness, a lawyer for one of the people who were charged, a lawyer for Burton Ritchie, reached out to me and alerted me to this issue, which really hadn't been getting enough attention. And so long story short, that's how back in 2018, I started digging into this issue and eventually led to writing the book that became Bizarro. Mm -hmm. And first of all, what is the Analog Act? Sure. So you grow up and you know that drugs are illegal, right? Cocaine, heroin, et cetera. You, no one really has to explain sort of how or why. Obviously, people have different opinions about whether things should be illegal, what should be illegal. So put all that to the side before getting into all of that. The fact is it is illegal, right? Mm. And how is it illegal? How do you know, right? It's not something you really think about because it's just something that happens in the background. But the reason is because, at least on the federal level, during the Nixon era, there was the Controlled Substances Act, which, among other things, it lists which drugs are legal. So again, whatever you think about the drug war, it makes sense for if things are illegal, for there to be a list of it somewhere where mm -hmm. a person could consult that list if they so wished. Now, the problem in law enforcement's view, once we get into the late 70s and early 80s, is that a wily underground chemist can take a look at this list of drugs, cocaine, heroin, et cetera, and say, hmm, I can tweak a molecule on these drugs ever so slightly to create a new concoction, which is not on this list, but could still get people high. And there you go. Everybody wins, right? People can still get high. The dealers and users cannot go to jail. Everything's great, right? Well, no, according to if you've ever met or even heard of anyone in law enforcement, that's not an acceptable state of affairs. And so this so-called designer drug issue, as I've just very summarily laid it out, is what led politicians and law enforcement 
eventually in 1986 to pass this law called the Analog Act to try and get ahead of this cat and mouse game where cops were chasing after these underground chemists who were creating these new drugs faster than they could be banned. So now it makes sense as far as it goes, right? Again, put put to the side whatever your feelings are about it. You can understand the logical progression of how the issue developed. So how do they accomplish this law in the Analog Act? What does it say? So the key phrase there is substantially similar. The Analog Act says at bottom, if you are selling a drug that is quote unquote substantially similar to a drug that's already on the Nixon era Controlled Substances Act list, you're on the hook as if you were selling that already illegal drug, cocaine, heroin, mm-hmm. et cetera, whatever it might be. And so that's how the Analog Act came to be in 1986 to try and solve this so-called designer drug problem. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, you talk about uh, the federal level with all the drugs are listed on there, too. Do you think the federal law is actually working or should that be uh, given to the states? They can determine, you know, what's illegal, what's not a percentage and everything else, especially um, m- marijuana, which has turned medical as well, too. In some states, it's legal and some it's not. Do you think the um, the, the federal federal should continue this or should be like just given over to the states and let them determine what's legal or not legal? I don't think it should be given to anyone in the government to determine what substances people can use if they so choose and are of a competent mind to do so. I think the federal state distinction is sort of a it's an important issue, but it's an issue within the subject of sort of rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, so to speak. But nonetheless, we're on the Titanic, so it's important to talk about. That's not going away anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bring up marijuana, for example. It's a very important issue on the federal versus state level, because even from a decade ago, it's a world that you almost couldn't conceive of legally now, where it's increasingly becoming legal in many, many more states, whether it's medical, recreational, some combination of the two. The problem is under the Controlled Substances Act, that Nixon era law, cannabis is still on the most restricted federal schedule. So even if it's not the federal government's top priority, you have these shops that are operating in the shadow of this possible illegality, even if they're doing everything possible to try and comply with the law, there is that possibility at the end of the day that the feds could come after them potentially if they wanted to. And so one of the very clear practical problems that causes is that these businesses trying to abide by the law can't work with banks because a bank, which is operating under federal law, because they're very easily coming under that, whether they're dealing in interstate commerce over the internet, all banks are going to be looking to federal law. They're hesitant to try and get involved with a business that is technically possibly in violation of federal law. And so you have these businesses that have a ton of cash on hand and making a situation much more dangerous than it has to be. And so that's a bit of a winding answer, just one small example of the question. So should it be federal versus state? It really shouldn't be anywhere, but at the very least, it should be consistent. And right now, actually, as we speak, President Biden has announced a review of cannabis's status on the schedules where it is, but really not much has happened, certainly not enough in that regard. Obviously, it would just make more sense to not have it beyond the schedule at all. It's certainly not on the most restricted one, but it certainly is a a business. I think that the 
government doesn't need to be involved in, at least not from so much an enforcement perspective, probably more from a public health perspective is what would be most valuable for everybody. You mentioned something about the uh, banks as well, too, being involved with the, um, you know, the somewhat you know, illegal drugs, like the medical marijuana and everything. Do you think the over-centralizing of banks, you know, you know, forcing like you know, all these small banks into one, do you think the over-centralizing is uh, complicating a lot of things and uh, also kind of like, you know, defeating the war on drugs in a sense? The banking specific question leads me a little farther astray from my expertise. So I don't think I'm really competent to weigh in on the the non-drug related bank aspect, other than to say, me as someone who doesn't know the first thing about banks, I think you can look at this situation and say, it makes no sense at all for a business that's trying to do everything it can to comply with the law, whatever the banking system is, if some business that's selling soap or pretzels or whatever else it is that people want. If it's a legal business, it should have access to the same infrastructure, I think, as all of the other ones. So it's an interesting question uh, that you ask it. And now that you ask it, I'm kind of curious about it myself, but I don't think I could give you a, a competent answer just not having a, a banking specific background. Mm -hmm. it, of course, the thing is, too, is that uh, having the banks involved and um, anything tied to it just kind of makes, you know, frustrating, like for the court you know, to approve and everything else has gotten more tougher over the years. And of course, it's also gotten bizarre as well, too. And of course, the case of Jordan Rubin's uh, Bizarro, the surreal saga of America's secret war on synthetic drugs and the Florida kingpins it captured. How bizarre does it get? We'll find out more with Jordan Rubin. But first, you listen to the Mike Weiner Show at the MikeWeinerShow.com, powered by SoundCloud Studios. Visit online at SoundCloudStudios.com for all your needs. Look at a professional website without breaking your budget. SoundCloud Studios is the answer. SoundCloud Studios offers fast, affordable custom web designs at below the competition rate. Call today, 1-800-303-3960. That's 1-800-303-3960. Or email to support at sonicwebstudios.com. Mention the Mike Wagner Show. Get 20% off your first project. Sonic Web Studios. Take your image to the next level. Also, time to give an official shout-out to our official sponsor, the Mike Wagner Show, international warring author, Mia Molsonzia. If you love fast-paced mysteries, you'll love Missing by Mia Molsonzia. Available on Amazon and paperback and ebook. Missing is fast-paced and intriguing with an unforgettable twist. It takes place in four countries, two strangers, one target, where truth is illusion and those you love be the first go missing. It's available on Amazon and paperback and ebook. Missing by Mia Molson Zia has garnered great reviews. And Eve 11 enjoys by Howard's celebrities, including Joanna Cassie, Ford Riley, and Manales. So grab your copy today for Girls Missing by Mia Molson Zia, available on Amazon. Also, check out the Mike Widener Show at themikewidenershow.com on our 40 podcast platforms. Heard in 100 countries, including Facebook, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Spotify, iHeartRadio, also Podbean, Apple, Audible. Also, follow us on BitChute, Rumble, YouTube, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and subscribe. Tickets with you on any mobile device. And for great gift ideas, go to Amazon.com. Check out the Mike Widener Show podcast. T-shirts, pop sockets, throw pillows, tote bags, hoodies. Makes great gifts 24-7. Go to Amazon.com. Be sure to check out the Mike Widener Show podcast. And for more great gift ideas like great books like Winsing, Once and Wrinkles. Also cool items like t-shirts, pop sockets, hoodies, phone cases, and more. Amazon.com slash me and Molson Zia. Check it out today. And support the Mike Widener Show on Anchor FM, PayPal, and the themikewidenershow.com. We're here with former New York City uh, narcotics prosecutor and journalist for The Legal Reporter and MSNBC and the um, author of the book, Bizarro, The Surreal Saga of America's um, Secret War on Synthetic Drugs and the Florida Kingpins at Capture with Jordan Rubin here on the Mike Widener Show. And of course, you know, a bit, bit about Bizarro, how you got um, the idea of the book from um, talking to one of the people and um, 
just tell it's a mind-boggling story, the unprecedented federal prosecution conviction of two, Burton Ritchie and Ben Galicki. So uh, tell us about the uh, first two men and uh, how did they meet, first of all, besides you all know, getting involved with uh, Narcotics Anonymous? Burton and Ben, they both grew up in the Pensacola, Florida area. They're both at a, about 50 years old today. They're, they're actually both in federal prison today, but the long winding road that led them there, they actually had earlier crossed paths in the Boy Scouts when they were younger. They were a few years apart, so they were in the Boy Scouts at the same time, but in different troops. And then about a decade or so later, once they're into their teens, anyway, they crossed paths at Narcotics Anonymous. Burton had gotten arrested at 19 in an acid sale at a nightclub. And as part of his court-ordered plea deal that was a diversion deal that was basically a no-contest plea got him out of it, he had to attend Narcotics Anonymous meetings. That was part of the deal. Uh, ben, he was younger in high school at the time, and he was forced into meetings as well. He was joy riding with friends. He was drunk at school, basically just getting into youthful type trouble. And so through different paths, they both wound up crossing there and they stayed in touch over the years. And so, of course, the deep irony, one of the many ones in the story is that one of the main areas in which they crossed paths in their lives as teenagers, at least, led them eventually to staying in touch in creating this drug empire that landed them in federal prison all these years later. Mm. And uh, what was it, what was that one moment for them that, you know, you know, wanted to get involved in drug empire was like, do you think Narcotics Anonymous, you know, in a sense helped? Do you think it also kind of like, you know, hurt in a way or was it like, you know, just rebelling and give my idea of like an excuse to start drug empire? I think it just happened to be where they crossed paths. I, I think it really could have been anywhere. It could have been in a drama club or on a baseball team or anything. It just sort of the weirdness of this story. That's where they happened to meet. And it, and it meant different things to both of them. Burton would be the first to admit that he had a problem and I think was grateful to have been effectively forced into meetings there. He would consider himself an addict and he still takes his recovery very seriously to this day. For Ben, I think it was more of just something that he had to do, he didn't really consider himself an addict and doesn't to this day. And that just happened to be the absurd backdrop to this story that where eventually led to people who in the government government's eyes anyway, were classified as drug kingpins. But that's just where they touched base at that point in their lives and weren't in touch every day or anything like that over the years, but they stayed in touch and eventually wound up coming back together to form this empire. Mm -hmm. And uh, and how is this uh, Burton Ritchie thing was so strange and so bizarre it also led to, you know, this whole vagueness of the thing. And what was like really bizarre about the whole thing that just simply ended in a no plea? Sure. So in terms of Burton's case when he was younger. Right. So that was really an unremarkable case in retrospect, in the sense that it's the type of lower level case that goes through the system all of the time. I don't know if he or the court system would have thought that he would have wound up being convicted as a drug kingpin all of these years later. But it was a very typical case in the sense that with someone without this prior history, you can get a shot if you have a relatively low level case and you have the right legal representation to help you get through the court system. So that part of it was relatively normal. Of course, he didn't stop there in terms of having trouble with the law, despite his 
best efforts. At least he would put it that way. Mm-hmm. And, and do you think that uh, particular case just led into, um, you know, major changes in the law in that? In terms of his case when he was 19, I don't think so. I think that really the major changes potentially will come in the case where he was eventually charged under this Reagan era analog act, but that wouldn't happen for decades later after he and Ben started this business selling synthetic drugs and eventually came onto law enforcement's radar that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, tell us more about the spoiling spice operation that they did. And um, why was it called a spice operation? Right. So Burton, after he gets arrested and starts to get his life together, he winds up opening again in another absurd turn, turn this chain of head shops in the Pensacola area called the Psychedelic Shack, where he sold all of the sorts of things that you would see if you've ever been to any of these types of stores, which are everywhere, selling tie dye, T-shirts, pipes, posters, that sort of thing. And once you get into the mid to late 2000s, there was this stuff called Spice or K2. It was also called that became very popular where you would see it. It was known as this synthetic weed or fake weed. It was seemingly legal and you could get you high, but you could walk up and buy it in these head shops or in the gas station or any of these other stores. And Burton sold this stuff at the Psychedelic Shack, like all these other head shops did too. They were doing it out in the open. It wasn't a clandestine thing. A cop could walk in and buy it too if they wanted. It was just the latest so-called legal high craze of which there were many different types over the years. All these head shops always did and still do even to this day. But so Burton being this entrepreneurial mind, he's looked around and said, well, my shop is selling this stuff, Spice, and it's flying off the shelves. He had the idea to start distributing it to other head shops like his around the country. And so that's when he went to Ben and asked if he wanted to get in on starting this company, which they called ZenSense, which wound up distributing Spice to head shops all across the country and would later be called a kingpin drug empire by the government. Mm-hmm. And surprising, too, that a cop could just walk up and, and buy it without uh, prosecuting. That is rather surprising, especially given Florida's um, you know pretty lenient laws when it comes to that. Right. And it's not that cops wouldn't want to charge people for selling what everyone would consider drugs. It's just the law having this lack of clarity in terms of what's illegal sets up this type of situation. So this, the chemicals inside of spice were always changing. So going back to our conversation about the Controlled Substance Act and this Nixon era list, the stuff inside of spice would not be listed on the Controlled Substances Act. But under the Analog Act, there's the possibility that it could count as quote unquote, substantially similar to an already illegal drug. But even then, not everyone who was selling the stuff even knew about the Analog Act because it's such a relatively little known law. But in any event, it left it unclear because the chemicals would keep changing. And then once one of them got banned, a new one would be created. And so the analog act, as I mentioned earlier, was made to try and circumvent this cat and mouse game, but it certainly didn't eliminate it. It just changed how the players played it because it's a cycle that I don't think really can ever be broken. It's just a question of in what way does the government want to intervene, if at all. Mm-hmm. And, and do you think it's really difficult for um for a lot of courts to be uh, challenging this law or try to prosecute, especially and keep changing it or adding or subtracting the spice and everything? And it has got has the um prosecuting or court costs and the legal system has it gotten costlier and more complicated over the years? And um, 
has it has it caused like you know a lot of frustration on this or is it like you know you know with the clarity maybe it's a bit easier some or maybe like you know just throwing some rookies in there and uh, and try these guys no it has caused a lot of frustration for everyone involved interestingly for different reasons so if you're a judge, you just want things to be easy, right? You don't want anything that's overly complicated. You won't, you don't want to have to make a ruling that's on a new terrain that could potentially be reversed on appeal. You don't want to cause issues for the most part. Judges being conservative figures, small c conservative, not in the political sense, but just not wanting to make any waves. As a prosecutor, you want a short thing. You don't want to bring a case that could possibly be lost. And so the law by its nature, the Analog Act, has this inherent doubt built into it because it's not even clear if the substance you're charging someone with selling is even illegal at all. So it's really an amazing thing if you step back and think about it, because in any other type of drug case, cocaine, heroin, again, any of the so-called classics, it's never a question when you're bringing one of these cases, is this drug illegal? There could be all types of other legal issues. Is there a Fourth Amendment search issue? Is there a due process confession issue? All sorts of things, but never really the question just at the end of the day of, wait, are these guys even selling something illegal? It's incredible, and it doesn't exist anywhere else in the law that I'm aware of. And that's one of the things that led me to write Bizarro, because so there's the frustration on the prosecution's part. Obviously, there's the frustration on the defense part, because they'll turn around and say, how can we abide by the law if it's not even clear what the law is. It's a built-in doubt. It's a built-in vagueness into the law, but it's everyone has a complaint about it just for different reasons because it just makes things more complicated than it has to be. Now, now if you were to, to rewrite the analog uh, act, you know, make it more clear, what would you add to it? Or how would you make it clear? It's an interesting question that I've thought about a lot over the years. And I've spent a lot of time spinning my wheels about it. But so the, the top level answer that I would give to that is just that, and this is not something I'm saying to you, it's something I'm saying to the government in that- That's fine. If if the if a law is not clear, it's not up to me and you, Mike, to make it clearer, to do politicians and the government's work for them. And so there is this inherent tendency, right? Just as a logical person, as a problem solver, as a person who wants to do good in the world, well, I'm critiquing something, so what's my proposal? What I would say is just if a law is too vague to stand under the constitution, then it's just not my problem. And so if it has to go away, then it has to go away. Now, that's my top line answer to it, not my problem. If I'm really gonna get into the weeds of it, my answer is perhaps somewhat counterintuitive, which is that, I would probably make the law even more overbearing in the sense of even if it's stricter, making it clearer that a situation like the one I write about could never possibly happen, or at the very least, no one would be able to say they didn't know what the law is, meaning you would probably want it to capture more potential substances. Now, that would prevent people like Burton and Ben in the book Bizarro that I write about from being able to have any reasonable claim to saying they didn't know they were possibly breaking the law. Now, there are problems, though, too, with having with having a law that captures indefinitely, theoretically, even more substances, because 
you run the risk of capturing substances that you don't know what they are. They could potentially be helpful. There are underground chemists who are doing things that are not harmful. Again, that's it's a subjective thing to say. But even if you're somebody who doesn't like quote unquote drugs, there are people who are doing experimentation on things that are not necessarily creating what you would think of as a drug. And so the problem, again, to sum it up is, I don't think that the government is best positioned to be in this business of regulating this type of behavior anyway, at least not from an enforcement perspective, but it's problematic when you start to outlaw things non-specifically because you could be doing a lot of harm in the world mm-hmm. from people who don't necessarily want to operate in conventional structures, but who might be very smart and have a lot to add. And there have been a lot of people like that throughout history. And I think one of the things that the Analog Act has done is had sort of a chilling effect. I think that's been the main impact on it, to have a chilling effect on the curious among us to, even if not to stop them, to make them think twice and maybe to stop some people from going forward and experimenting with things that maybe that would wind up being harmful, maybe would wind up being helpful, maybe would wind up being benign, but it's just, you have to, when you have a law like the Analog Act that captures a potentially infinite number of substances, ones that haven't even been thought of or created yet, there's a danger to that, that there's no way that the people who passed this law in the mid eighties were even thinking of as a possibility, because that's just not what they were caring about. They cared about trying to stop people from getting high and from people making money off of helping people get high by any means necessary. Do you think the source of frustration when it comes to um trying trying to clarify this law, the source of frustration, do you think that's coming from like the taxpayers who have to put in more money, try to put in like, you know, more regulation and everything? They think that's becoming more of like um was like a waste of taxpayers dollars. Or do you think, you know, at times do you think it could be worth all that money? So I think you, it's definitely fair to say it's a huge waste of taxpayer dollars because it is incredibly burdensome to bring these cases because, again, going back to the example of the so-called classics, cocaine, heroin, uh, cannabis, whatever might still be, excuse me, on the Controlled Substance Act list, it's not as simple as just bringing in a chemist who reads out a report and says, yep, this is the thing that you said it was, it's cocaine, it's illegal. You have to bring in expert testimony to argue to a jury why this substance, which may or may not be illegal, is substantially similar to an already illegal drug. So there are huge costs that are not associated with a typical case. What do you think the verdict would have been? Sorry, I think you might have you cut out a bit. Oh, for the yeah, part. yeah, I was uh, having a little tough. T- Mike Wagner show and uh, in here, so we're back now on and uh, apologize for technical difficulties here. And um, if this case were to be, uh, you know, tried in New York, this happened in New York. Do you, what what would be the outcome of uh, Burton Ritchie and uh, Ben Galicki? So on the state level, it wouldn't be able to be tried, at least not in this way, because it doesn't doesn't have this federal analog act. If they're selling a substance that wasn't on the state list of laws, then the authorities are just out of luck and the defendants are in good luck. And it's that exact type of situation that 
in the mid 80s, the politicians were trying to stop. They wanted to make sure that you cannot sell a substance that gets someone high without facing criminal consequences for it. That's not exactly the way they put it, but that's really the gist of what they were trying to do to have this backstop at the federal level so people couldn't get around what at least they would term, they being the politicians and the government, as a loophole in the law. It could just as well be called complying with the law by not violating it. But even the way you frame that, whether calling it a loophole, compliance, or anything else, will indicate what you think about the issue overall. Obviously, in our use of language, as you know, that will, even in a seemingly benign way, will say a lot about what you think about the issue. Mm-hmm. You also mentioned news about uh, you know President Biden just you know announcing that there was the um, I'm I'm trying to remember what it is. It's uh, you know amending to the law and such. And um, do you think that anything's going to make it more clear, or do you think it's going to take some time? And uh, about the next president, do you think they're going to enforce that? Right. So the thing is looking at where cannabis is listed on the schedule. So it's currently under Schedule One, which is the most restricted. Uh, schedule, which makes absolutely no sense at all. Other things on this schedule are uh, heroin, LSD, and, and you could argue, certainly there's a difference, I think, between heroin and the psychedelics, and you could say none of it should be on it at all, but you certainly can't say that they're the same thing as cannabis. But so what Biden has said is ordering a review, not saying that he thinks this stuff should be legal necessarily, just that perhaps it should be on a less restricted schedule. So it's a very incremental approach that's not going to work any sort of uh, total revolution in the law as far as legalization, but it could at the very least allow some officially sanctioned research into this plant, which there's been unofficial research going on for uh, many years, which doesn't leave really that much to be known, only to be known officially under government circumstances. So whether anything comes of it, maybe it might be changed to a different schedule, but it will take some time. And as far as what the next administration might do, really could be anything. It's most likely not going to be a top priority, really, of any type of administration, because drugs, one way or the other, usually are not. And The conversation, I think, has been changing a bit, but generally you're not going to see someone, at least not running for president, someone who's going to be the nominee for either major party, making drug legalization an important part of their platform because they must just look at it and see it just doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense to do that because you only have a couple of choices at the end of the day and they might not want to make or break themselves on that issue, which other people might not agree with who might agree with them otherwise on sort of more mainstream issues. Mm-hmm. And, and then assuming that Burton Ritchie and uh, Ben Galicki, you know, you know, get out of jail on some circumstance, do you think they'll do the same thing again, do something different, or you think they might have learned their lesson? They're not going to do the same thing again. Um, whether they learn the lesson is an interesting question. I think it, there are different, a lot of different lessons there. I think in their eyes, they still don't think they, broke the law, even if they don't necessarily think that they were doing a good benevolent thing by moral standards. But I would be very surprised if they went back and and did this again. Even the judge in sentencing them um, in Las Vegas in their most recent trial, and this was in 2020, he sentenced them. He had to sentence them to a mandatory minimum of at least 20 years in prison under the kingpin law. Mm. He even said then that he didn't think that they were at risk of uh, recidivating, which is the fancy legal criminological term for 
breaking the law again. And so that just, again, shows another of the many absurdities in this story. But no, I would be very surprised if they went and did this particular thing again, just to not want to have to go through the hassle, because no matter what happens, it's already, I think, ruined their lives in important ways. Not that their lives are over, but they've lost a significant chunk of it due to this. Mm-hmm. And of course, what do you want a reader to uh, get get out get out of the book from Bizarro? In the first instance, I want people to know about the existence of the law. I'm not looking to tell people what they should think about it, but even lawyers, even lawyers who specialize in drug cases, I found don't even know that this thing exists. Huh. And so I think even uh, and so if that's the case, then I think just, you know, even normal educated people, whatever your level of education is at all, probably don't know about it either, unless you have specific reason to know about it. And so it's really just about raising awareness in the first instance, because going back to your uh, good questions about taxpayers, it's something that the government is doing in our name with our money and putting the force of prosecution and imprisonment behind it. And so I think that certainly if you're generally interested in the war on drugs. This is an aspect of it that is little known and you'll want to know about. And even if you're not necessarily interested in that, I do think it calls into question really these epic moral issues that extend beyond drugs. And it really asks questions about what do we want our government to be doing for us in our name? And what do we want the law to do for us or possibly not do for us if this leads you to the conclusion that maybe it's uh, better to leave well enough alone sometimes. Mm-hmm. And where can we find your book, uh, Bizarro at? Everywhere good books are sold, jordanrubin.net, uh, any of the big booksellers online, and you should be able to go into your local bookseller and buy it. And if it's not in there, I would cause you to politely make a scene and demand them to immediately start stocking Bizarro politely. <laughs> or or, or, wa- or wave some uh, cannabis or something. I'm kidding. <laughs> Whatever you do, I can't bail you out, but I would appreciate it. Okay, well, those are some ideas. And uh, what's coming up for uh, Jordan Rubin of Bizarro? I'll find out just one minute. You listen to the Mike Wagner Show at the themikewagnershow.com, powered by SoundCloud Studios and brought to you by our official sponsor, the Mike Wagner Show, international warring author Mia Molson's Day of Missing. We'll be back with the author of Bizarro, the surreal saga of America's social secret war and synthetic drugs, Jordan Rubin, after this time. The Mike Wagner Show is powered by Sonic Web Studios. If you're looking to start or upgrade your online presence, visit www.sonicwebstudios.com for all of your online needs. Call one 800 303 3960 or visit us online at www.sonicwebstudios.com to get started today. Mention the Mike Wagner show and get 20% off your project. Sonic Web Studios. Take your image to the next level. Hey everybody, my name is Forbes Riley and I'm an American actress and a TV host and I was delighted when I got my copy of Missing, which is extraordinary relation of ordinary people based on a real life relationship. It's just it's well written. It's amazing. You know, it talks about a man who has lost his wife and his daughter, and it's very well done. I'm going to highly recommend that you go get your copy of Missing. It is a powerful, exciting read. Mr. Mian Moshazia, he is the author of Missing. And I want to give a big shout out and a kiss all the way halfway around the world to my dear friend. Check him out at Mia's website. It's called www.miamoshazia.com. Missing, available on Amazon. Again, I'm Forbes Riley, and I will see you again soon. Bye-bye. Hey, hey, this is Ray Powers, and boy, are you in luck. Right place, right time. 
tuned in to The Mike Wagner Show. You heard me. We're back with uh, author Jordan Rubin, Bizarro, the surreal saga of America's secret war on synthetic drugs and the floor of kingpins at capture here on the Mike Wagner show. And um, just a great, a great uh, insight, which you uh, gave into about Bizarro, the war on drugs, the analog act. I learned a lot. And uh, just a couple of things. Uh, what else can you expect in 2023 and beyond? Sure. So in this story, we're waiting to see. It's a cliffhanger, really, as it ended, because Burton and Ben's case is still on appeal. Amazingly, it was argued all the way back in December of 2021. And we're still waiting for the appeals court to rule. No matter which way it rules, the losing side in it will probably appeal even further, possibly even all the way up to the Supreme Court. So we're waiting for a ruling any day to find out what the next chapter of Bizarro is going to be as we sit here today mike no one knows mm-hmm. and of course they say stay tuned folks and who and who, who you consider biggest influence in your career biggest influence in my career that's yes. interesting i'd have to say my father who's a lawyer who i probably didn't give a whole lot of thought to what i was going to do growing up because i probably always thought it was going to be law and he didn't dissuade me from doing that. So it's an interesting question and probably not one that I've thought a lot about explicitly, but I do think it's probably a pretty obvious answer. Mm -hmm. And very obviously, indeed, too, made a good choice. And what's the best advice you can give to anybody at this point? At this point? Yes. Oh, gosh. I don't, my best advice is probably uh, don't listen to me. Don't try this at home, but. That's the best advice I've heard all day, especially to the kids watching or listening out there. So <laughs> we're here with author Jordan Rubin of Bizarro, the surreal saga of America's secret war on synthetic drugs and the Florida kingpins that created here on the Mike Wagner Show. Jordan, a very big thank you for your time. You've been absolutely fantastic. Learned a lot from me. Looking forward to having you again soon. Keep us up to date. Keep in touch. Love to have you back. Once again, what's your website? How do people contact you? What can people purchase or check out your book? Sure. So jordanrubin.net. Under Jordan Rubin, I'm on all the social media sites. And these days you can't hide even if you want to. So anyone who's listening, please reach out to me. Happy to talk about the book. Always like to hear feedback about it and really appreciate you having me on, Mike. And thanks everyone for listening. And certainly do so as well. And you've been great, Jordan. Jordan, very big thank you for your time. You've been absolutely fantastic. Looking forward to having you again soon. Keep us up to date. Keep in touch. Love to have you back. Wish you all the best. And Jordan, you definitely have a great future ahead. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. The Mike Wagner Show is powered by Sonic Web Studios. If you're looking to start or upgrade your online presence, visit www.sonicwebstudios.com for all of your online needs. Call 1-800-303-3960 or visit us online at www.sonicwebstudios.com to get started today. Mention The Mike Wagner Show and get 20% off your project. Sonic Web Studios. Take your image to the next level. Hey everybody, my name is Forbes Riley and I'm an American actress and a TV host. And I was delighted when I got my copy of Missing, which is Extraordinary Relation of Ordinary People based on a real life relationship. It's just, it's well written, it's amazing. You know, it talks about a man who has lost his wife and his daughter and it's very well done. I'm gonna highly recommend that you go get your copy of Missing. It is a powerful, exciting read. Mr. Mian Moshe Zia, he is the author of Missing. And I wanna give a big shout out and a kiss all the way halfway around the world to my dear friend. Check him out at Mia's website. It's called www.miamotionzea.com. Missing, available on Amazon.
Again, I'm Forbes Riley, and I will see you again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Mike Wagner Show. Brought to you by international award-winning author Mia Mosin-Zia of Missing. And powered by Sonic Web Studios. Be sure to join us again on over 40 podcast platforms. And of course, on the MikeWagnerShow.com, HamiltonRadio.net, and Diamonds FM. Don't forget to support our program with a generous donation at the MikeWagnerShow.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>